In this final SLFC lesson on Qi and Metis, we're going to continue talking about narrative, but narrative as it pertains specifically to what we might consider an NDU unorthodox strategy. So we have a short reading from Catulia. This is a continuation um, or a little more depth, if you will, from the online lecture of Dr. Sean Nefait. And then we have also a reading from The Essence of War, translated by Ralph Sauer, specifically talking about the unorthodox, the indirect strategies um, that we find in traditional Chinese literature on strategy. So I want to specifically talk about the concept of influence. Now I'm going to introduce some ideas, and we're going to talk about some of the ideas in plenary, but we're very much going to pick this back up after your NSS course in January for your spring information uh, warfare course. So I want to first talk about influence, then I want to talk about the concepts of qi and metis and how the three are related. So there's many definitions or working definitions of influence in the national security environment. There's one from Rand, which I'll, sh I'll, I'll put up on the screen if I have time during plenary. And I'm going to try to take a deep breath, try uh, not to um, get uh, seasick or vomit when I'm uh, reading this, because this sounds a lot like uh, the sort of techno babble that you hear inside the Beltway. I think there's a lot more to it than that, of course. I'm being a little bit cheeky. Here it goes. According to Rand, influence is the coordinated, integrated, and synchronized application of national, diplomatic, informational, military, economic, and other capabilities in peacetime, crisis, conflict, and post-conflict to foster attitudes, behaviors, or decisions by foreign target audiences that further state interests and objectives. So some would argue that that definition is too expansive. It's so expansive as to perhaps not be particularly useful because they're describing what is oftentimes the actual definition of strategy itself. I'm not saying that RAN is wrong. I'm not saying that is completely useless. It's that some people find this not so useful. Terry Dibel says, uh, if power is characteristic of the initiator of a foreign affairs strategy, influence should be seen as the effect of that power on its intended targets. So he includes the effect of hard power, of armament, on intended targets. Basically, and this is very similar to a definition that is used in mainstream press, whether it's Wall Street Journal or New York Times, whether it's Fox News or CNN, and that is that uh, interchanging the, uh, the ideas of effect and influence as nouns, and effect and influence, um, saying that they're very similar or perhaps the same. Thomas Schelling talks about uh, affecting behavior through latent force. This is a lot like uh, the Rand definition, and Lawrence Friedman talks about as we uh, got earlier in the week is to focus on narratives and scripts and discourses and messages. So he's focusing specifically on storytelling. Uh, he's focused on um, perhaps storytelling that is meaningful, perhaps storytelling that um, provides uh, identity or strengthens identity and has a purpose. But oftentimes people, his definition is in the realm of what we would consider narrative or narrative strategy, for example. So the definition that I like to use for influence um, is, is not particularly unique. It's the same definition that the Department of Justice uses. Uh, I use the formal and legal definition of influence 
in the Oxford English Dictionary, which is the same as the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. And I do this for two reasons. The first reason is that influence cannot be easily translated into other languages. So instead of defining influence in every phone call and every email when I talk about influence, I can refer them to the Oxford English Dictionary or Merriam-Webster, or they can go to any, even the Cambridge University Dictionary, and they'll get a similar definition. I am, so I want to be specific. I want people to know what I mean when I say influence. They may disagree with the definition. You may disagree with the definition. Hopefully you will. Again, it's going to be a boring semester if you agree with faculty, on uh, even on most points. But I would say that um, it's helpful for simply communicating to people across departments and across governments, especially in other languages. The second reason I like the formal definition, it provides a blueprint. It is limiting. The parameters are not everywhere. It's not the effect that everything has on everything else. It's limiting and provides a sort of blueprint. It emphasizes deception or subtlety or stealthiness or the clandestine or covert nature of some influence campaigns or at least some aspects of influence campaigns. So the definition of influence from Oxford English Dictionary that I use in my work, now if I find a better definition, I've been doing this for about 23 and a half years, if I find a better definition, certainly I'll use that. Because what I care about is, is this definition useful? Does it make your life easier and your job? And that is influence is producing a desired outcome without apparent materialization of hard power by indirect or seemingly intangible methods. So again, it's producing an outcome without the materialization of force by indirect or seemingly unseeable methods. The idea here is that people don't want to be influenced against their will. When influence campaigns are done well, you won't know who the influencer is. When influence campaigns are done well, you will not know that you're being influenced. When influence campaigns are done very well, you will become the amplifiers or the unwitting agents of that influence campaign. And when influence campaigns are done extremely well, even historians in the future will not be able to recognize that there was a concerted, purposeful influence campaign. So it's producing an outcome without hard power by indirect or seemingly intangible methods, emphasizing in the sub-definitions without use or threat of force, without exercise of formal authority, unseen or insensible, perceptible only in its effects. Now, if you go back to early English to see where the word influence comes from, what's interesting is it's generally the idea is because it's unseen, because it's intangible, because it's indirect, it was seen as something that was at the hands, and I quote here, of angels, demons, gods in thin places. It had unearthly undertones, quoting here, the divine, the spiritual, or the astral. So it seemingly comes from nowhere. It doesn't seemingly come from a protagonist. At least you don't know who the protagonist might be. And we find that this is similar to the definition of influence is not the same at all 
but there are similarities to the definition of the Chinese word qi. Qi oftentimes talks about the indirect, the discrete, the unconventional. There are other definitions of qi, such as the spirit or will to fight, but oftentimes when we talk about strategy, we're talking about the indirect, discrete, unconventional. And if you go back to early uses in China of the word qi, and I'm quoting here, it refers to a, something that's mysterious, of something beyond ordinary comprehension. So again, a lot like the early English words for influence, it's you can't necessarily see it. It's beyond our comprehension to know all the mechanisms of what's going on. Also for qi in the early usage, uncanny and occult, especially in reference to ethereal events and ghostly phenomena. Now we have metis, which is a Greek term. And this is a word that, if you remember, Lawrence Freeman talks about in that first couple chapters of which we've read part of for SLFC 17. Metis often refers to influence in the indirect and psychological aspects of power and warfare. Specifically, it refers to wisdom, cunning, prudence, and skill, and is personified originally in mythology as a titan whose children would be wiser than Zeus. So the idea, again, is that it's something of the gods. It's something that you can't quite see. Of course, today, we know at least in strategy, it's not something that's unseen. It's just that we can't, or it's not something that's not there. It's just unseen. We can't see it right now. And we want to very much uncover malign influence. Perhaps it takes some of its effect away. So why am I talking about chi? medicine and influence in regards to information and information warfare. Well, in talking about medis and talking about chi and talking about influence, scholars and strategists often focus on strategic communications and information warfare, on strategic deception of intent and means, and sometimes on subtle covert or clandestine strategy. The protagonist, that is the influencer, intends to influence actors or events through a concerted plan, and those plans are heavily driven oftentimes by human intelligence. Strategic influence normally emphasizes a surgical and precise understanding of people's intentions, mindsets, and narratives. The effect or means are psychological in nature. They assume the general target is people and people's minds. Really, the target is people's behavior, of course, but first you move their minds, then, uh, then you move their behavior, if you will. So the end state the target might be people, but the end state is behavior change or behavior unchanged. And so this goes very much back to kind of bring everything back to lesson 17 and our introduction to these five lessons, and specifically to the Friedman reading. He talks about the most powerful dichotomy in all strategic thought is the distinction between B and Metis. That is, one seeking victory in the physical domain and the other in the mental one relying on being strong and the other on being smart, one depending on courage and the other on imagination, one facing the enemy directly and the other approaching indirectly, perhaps by surprise, one prepared to fall with honor and the other seeking to survive through deception. But Angela Codvila goes on to say, and I quote, Sun Tzu proposed that the supreme art of war is to subdue the enemy without fighting. This advice seems to clash with Clausewitz's description of war as an act of violence pushed to its utmost bounds. 
but he suggests the two conceptions are not contradictory. Here, Clausewitz refers to fighting, but fighting is a tool of war, not war itself, compatible with Sun Tzu's vision of war. What is important, according to Kudvilla, is to select the means which is the most suitable under the given conditions. What I would argue is that you always want to consider both. That in no way are, is, does one necessarily exclude the other. We should always think in terms of unconventional and conventional, in orthodox and unorthodox, in direct war as well as indirect or irregular warfare. We should think in terms of bottom-up and top-down strategies, focusing on civil society and focusing on an adversarial or a competitor government. Thank you.